welcome to the Meta Church Podcast. We're thankful that you're taking part of your day to spend it with us, and we pray this message encourages you, inspires you, and leads you to experience the transformative power of Jesus in your life. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to week three of our devoted uh, preaching series on finding and unlocking intimacy with God. And I want to begin just by talking about something that we kind of uh, experience, maybe uh, are a part of, maybe actively even engaging as a culture. Uh, and it's this idea and this belief that more is always better, right? We live in a society, we live in a culture that is always propagating, always telling us that more, 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 get more of this, get more of that. You need something more that we don't have enough, that we're insufficient. So more is always kind of at the center uh, and always at the, the, the kind of crux of uh, of what we experience and what we engage in. It's like, oh, I need a new phone, or I need a new house, or I need a new car, or I need more clothes, or I need uh, a bigger space, or I need more money, or more, 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 right? Like we're, we're just kind of dissatisfied or, or, or enable, or unable, I should say, to be uh, content, to experience contentment. But there are certain situations where more is not better. There are certain conditions, certain um, uh, examples maybe that, that we could talk about or refer to where where more does not mean better, where more does not equal better. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you a few kind of uh, illustrations to help kind of visualize uh, situations or scenarios in which more was definitely not better, okay? So here's example number one. You see this car, it is a souped up Ford Focus. Now, I don't know if you've ever driven a Ford Focus, uh, but a Ford Focus was actually the very first car that I had as a high schooler. And there was nothing cool about it. There was nothing fast about it. There was nothing sporty about it. Yet on this image, you can see uh, that whoever owned this vehicle decided they were gonna make it like souped up, put spoilers, make it kind of race car, pinstripe, you know? And at the end of the day, it's like, bro, like that's still a Ford Focus. Just because you added more to it does not make it better. In fact, because you added more to it, it makes it look like you're just trying too hard. Like you're, you know, you don't know what you're doing. Okay, so that's example one, number one. Here's example number two, where more is not better. In this case, maybe you're not concerned about cars, but a home. And you can see here, here's a home edition that for whatever reason, doesn't work. <laughs> it looks like they Frankenstein this house. You can see kind of the original home is beautiful, like this kind of brick, um, uh, you know, facade or front, and it's nice and has this kind of really kind of period piece, like look to it. And then they got this weird vinyl siding attachment that is taller than the house. It's kind of like juxtaposed. The windows aren't like laid out properly. And it's just like more like, yeah, you needed more house, but that was the wrong kind of more. Like if you can't, do an addition that matches the house, at least try, like maybe, you know, try it. Like it's just weird. More is not better in this situation, okay? And then here's here's the third uh, and final example, okay? Maybe this one is the most controversial of it all, okay? Here it is, Hawaiian pizza. Hawaiian pizza. More is not better, right? Like, and I know for some people you love Hawaiian pizza, other people you hate it, you either love it or hate it, right? That's kind of what it seems like where it's like, oh, I know what we could do with pizza to make it better. Let's add more or different stuff. Let's put pineapple and ham. Doesn't work. I mean, not for me. It's just not my thing. It is not my interest. And this is just one example, but pizzas can get crazy where people just throw more and more toppings and just make it over the top. And clearly, as we can see, more is not always better. Now I want you to hang on to that. I want you to think about that because the same can be said and the same can be true for intimacy in your relationships, intimacy in our relationships or our relationships in which we're trying to cultivate intimacy. Just because there is more does not make it or does not mean it is better. 
As I mentioned at the top, we started this devoted series all about finding and unlocking intimacy with God, right? And we talked about week one, how we need to communicate with God, that communication is the foundation or the starting point for intimacy. And then last week, you know, I talked about how it's about time, specifically quality time, you know, that uh, that's how co- our intimacy is cultivated. And one of the things that we've been kind of I'm talking about is this idea that like God wants to intimately know you, that you should intimately know God, that God can feel close and that you can be close to God. And one of the things that I think is most compelling about intimacy is how pure it is. One of the things I find most compelling about intimacy in relationships is how pure it is. So for for example, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the most intimate relationships you have. It doesn't matter if it's your, your spouse, your husband, wife. It uh, doesn't matter if it's boyfriend, girlfriend. It uh, doesn't matter if it's a friend, a family member. Uh, the person or the people that you trust the most, okay? That most intimate kind of the, that inner circle, those confidants that you rely on, the ones you lean on, uh, the ones not just that you lean on, but the ones that know the real you, the ones who know who you really are. Now, if you think about those relationships, those relationships started with very few strings attached and likelihood there was no or zero agenda as you formed or as you began those relationships. And yet somehow today, those are your most intimate relationships. And what I mean by that is that you didn't go into it thinking, okay, this person, this guy, this girl, this person that I just met, this stranger is going to become my husband. This stranger is going to become my wife. This stranger is going to become my best friend. This person I don't know. These are the expectations. This is my agenda. I'm going to make this person love me. No, no, no. You didn't go into it with that. I think about my own relationship with my wife, right? Krista and I, we married, you know, this year going on 16 years. It is by far up and away the most intimate relationship I have. And so... Well, I think about that relationship and the way that it started. It didn't start with this idea that, okay, one day we're going to get married. We're going to be living in New York City together. We're going to have a kid. It, it didn't start with any of that. In fact, the way it started, we both met. It was her freshman year, my sophomore year of Bible college. We went to a small, independent Baptist Bible college. The school on the whole was about 385, maybe 400 students on a good day. So very, very small college, very, very small school. And most of those kids... Most of those kids were either homeschooled or went to Christian school. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with that, so I'm not bashing anyone there. But Chris and I were in the minority. We were some of the few kids who actually went to a public high school. We didn't go to Christian schools. And so we connected on the fact that, oh, we went to larger public high schools. And so this felt like an anomaly. This felt weird and be almost kind of out of place to be in such a small situation. So we connected over that, right? It was like, okay, we, we get that. We level with each other. We can relate about that. We were, uh, went to like a college, did like a, a bowling night or whatever. And so everyone just went bowling to hang out and socialize. And like, they started playing music by Nelly. And so like, I started rapping the lyrics and Chris was like, oh, I like Nelly too. And so like, we were like kind of laughing and joking about how like, you know, we know all the lyrics to, to Nelly's songs. And so we're singing these things and kind of, you know, just joking and hitting things off in that way. And so there was simple and, and all of these things, whether it was the school or the music or, you know, kind of a family background, like those things just made it safe where we could just relate to each other, where we could just hang out, where we could just be friends. And so we started just as friends. We started hanging out. We started connecting. We started, you know, eventually we started dating and down the line it went, but it was, it it just originated with no sort of agenda, with no sort of like, um, uh, like a task of like, this is what it needs to become or expectation. And I think for many people, Not only is that true in their relationships with other people, but for many people, I think this is how they first come to God. 
See, there are very few, in general, there are very few strings attached. For most people, when they give their lives to Christ, when most people, when they come to faith, when most people are even just beginning to explore who is God, what does he desire, what does he say, is there a God that I can follow, that I can trust, that I can love, that loves me? When you start off at that place, I think for most people, there are very few strings attached and hardly any agenda they're simply just trying to figure out who is this God that these people or that this church or that this pastor is speaking about or that this Bible is talking about. Can I trust them? Can I know him? Can he know me? See, there are very few expectations. Certainly there are little to no grandiose um, beliefs about what God is going to do for them. In fact, I, I, I find it difficult to kind of look back on my life and think about people that I've encountered or met over the years as a pastor who have said, you know, when I just came to God, I really thought I was going to win the lottery. Or when I came to God, I really thought, like, you know, my life was going to blow up for the better. You know, I had these expectations or these beliefs that I was going to get rich or that I was going to find my, my partner or my wife or whatever. Like, it's not to say that doesn't happen, but that is a select few amount of people. The majority of us, we just come to God with, like I said, no agenda is just simply like, God, I've got nothing. I've got nothing, but I'll give you everything. If you want that, if that's what you say you'll take and that's satisfactory, you got, then I'll give you my all. I'll give you my life. Take me. You say you'll take me as I am. So go ahead, God, here it is. And I'll, and I'll, I'll just trade it in for this idea or this belief that you're going to preserve me and then I'm going to have life eternal with you. And so God, I'll, I'll, I'll trust you in that and I'll give that to you. And that's the extent of the expectation. That's the extent of the agenda. See, when people begin their relationship with God, it's largely based on the sense or largely based on the belief that they just want God and nothing else. They just want to know God. They just want to be loved by God. They just want to receive God's forgiveness and nothing more. But over time, but over time, we start to kind of add to that, don't we? Over time, we start to add in and throw in some expectations over time, we start to throw in some add-ons, so to speak. We start to kind of fill up this relationship. We start burdening this relationship with more and more things, more and more expectations, more and more agenda items, more and more tasks, more and more to-do lists. And it starts becoming less about like, God, I just want to know you and more like, God, I need you to do X, Y, Z things. It starts becoming like, God, did, did you really do enough for me in this situation? I felt like you kind of left a little on the table there. I felt like you could have gone a little bit further. I felt like you could have provided a touch more. I felt like you really could have, you know, maybe just kind of up the ante just a little bit. And, and or sometimes it's like, okay, now that I've been following God for a period of time, now that I've been following God for a year, 10 years, 20 years, five months, whatever it is, now that I've been following you, God, like maybe, maybe you'll hook me up. Maybe you'll hook me up with that partner. Maybe you'll hook me up with that job. Maybe you'll hook me up with that career. I've been doing everything good, so maybe you'll now like take care of me. And eventually, right in those moments, there's this feeling or the sentiment of like, wait, 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 wait. Why didn't you come through for me in that way? The way that I needed you. Why didn't you come through in that situation? Why didn't you take care of that problem or that scenario? And, and we start kind of burdening and saddling our relationship with God with more and more things when yet intimacy was never founded on those things or intimacy with God was never based on those things. You see, that's not how intimacy is formed, nor, get this, nor is it how intimacy is protected. And again, I'll go back to my relationship with Kristen. I'll, I'll use my marriage as an illustration. On the day I got married, like many other people, millions, maybe billions of people in the world used a set of similar vows to what I'm going to share with you right now. When I got married on August 5th, 2007 to my wife, I said something in the lines or something to the effect of, I will, you know, cherish and love you for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. 
and you know, kind of a slew of other things, so that to us part. You see, we had committed to each other, we said, I wanna be with you for the rest of my life. And, and we said, you know, no matter the circumstances, no matter the situations, on that wedding day, our vows, get this, our vows were not, believe it or not, our vows were not, I will be with you as long as we're rich. I will be with you as long as we have no problems. I will remain with you as long as everything is great in my career. I will stay with you as long as our kids are the best behaved kids on the block. We, we never said any of those things. Instead, it was the opposite. On that wedding day, on that day, August 5th, 2007, what I did and what Krista did was in effect, surrender all those ideals, surrender all those thoughts, surrender all those dreams or longings. Not that we don't want to have money. It's not that we don't want to have well-behaved kids. It's not that we don't want good health. But we surrendered and yielded those things to say, no matter what we have, no matter where we find ourselves, I want you. And no matter what's happening, I wanna be with you. And no matter what's taking place, you want to be with me. And so we're going to commit to this, that our intimacy is going to be founded on this idea that is just you and I don't need everything else. And I want to protect that. I want to cultivate that. I want to keep that. You see, so long as I keep those, others, those other ideals, those other uh, desires, those other dreams, so long as I keep those yielded and surrendered, I can cultivate and protect intimacy with my wife. And I can honor the intimacy that our relationship was founded upon and built on. And the same is true for your relationship with God. The same is true for the intimacy that you seek to cultivate with God. The same is true for the intimacy you could have with God. You see, we've said this throughout the series, but intimacy is not just something that, that kind of just happens. Nor is it, and I want you to listen to this, nor is intimacy something that just stays intact without protection, without consideration. You see, intimacy doesn't just happen flippantly and it doesn't just stay intact because you didn't treat it or you didn't care for it or you didn't guard it. And what you may not realize is that all these other things, as we start adding more and more and more and more and more, those things actually cloud intimacy and they crowd it out of our lives. They crowd it out of our relationships. The moment we start making it about, I need you to be this and this, and I need, you know, till death to us part, except for this. The moment, you know, oh, in sickness and in health, except for it's this kind of sickness. You know, uh, well, for richer, for poor, unless we're this kind of poor. Like, the moment you start adding all of those things, it crowds out into me. See, when your relationship with God is based on external concerns, when your relationship with God is based on external concerns, you crowd out your ability to connect intimately with Him. Okay, let me say this again in case you're listening on the podcast and you don't have the ability to stop and take notes. The moment when, you, when your relationship with God is based on external concerns, you crowd out your ability to connect intimately with Him. And this really, this problem or this predicament leads me to the third big idea of this series, and that is the idea of surrender. Surrender. We're talking about finding and unlocking intimacy with God. And if the first big idea is communication and the second big idea is time, the third big idea or big step for finding and unlocking intimacy with God is surrender. Now, Merriam Webster's defines surrender in this way. To give up completely or agree to forego, especially in favor of another to give up completely or agree to forego, especially in favor of another. And there's probably no greater example 
in all of Scripture, no greater example of this than Jesus himself. Specifically, I think of the situation the evening before Jesus would be crucified when he finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to God over this thing, this weight that he is carrying and this role that he is about to fulfill, this mission that he is about to accomplish as he hangs on the cross and pays for the sins of humanity. And that's where I want to be today. That's where I want to kind of park and I want to look at this text, Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And I'm going to read all 10 verses for you. I'm going to kind of walk through these things. And I want you to follow along. If you're watching on the screen, the verses will be up on the screen. If you're uh, listening on the podcast, then um, go ahead and, and find a time to kind of bookmark Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. But this is what right, the writer Mark had to say about this night. It says, They, which is Jesus and a couple of his friends, went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, Sit here while I go and pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. And he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death, so stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther, and he fell to the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. And he cried out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine." Verse 37, then he returned and found the disciples asleep. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open and they didn't know what to say. Verse 41, when he returned to them the third time, he said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But no, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Now, of course, this passage, if you've been around in church, if you've kind of hung out in, in church, well, especially like around Easter time, then it's probably a passage that you're familiar with. You've heard, maybe you read, or it's been recited and it sounded familiar. And we always kind of give those words, you know, not your will or not my will, but yours right? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Those words that Jesus spoke famously um, get a lot of play, as they should, as they should. And so when we think of surrender, that's often what we think of. Not my will, but yours, God. But there's so much more to surrender in this passage. In fact, to me, I see layers of surrender, depths of surrender that Jesus has to navigate through in these 10 verses so that he can speak and declare something like, not my will, but yours. Again, he's yielding in favor to another. That's what surrender is, right? And so what I want to do is I want to kind of draw out, in fact, I see like four different layers of four different types of surrender that I think are relevant and pertinent to the majority of us today, whether you're watching, listening, attending in person. I think these things are relevant to the majority of us. One of these, or maybe all of these, are going to fit to something or some situation that you're experiencing in your life, maybe even at this moment. And what I want to do is I want to kind of highlight these things. I want to speak about these things. And I want to help us understand what is it that we have to surrender? What is it that we have to let go of? And the first idea, the first idea that I want to present to you is this. We need to surrender the idea of always being happy. We need to surrender the idea of always being happy. You see, we live, as I said, in a culture that's filled and kind of overwhelmed with a lot of things. But one of the things that really kind of strikes me in our society, one of the things that really strikes me in our culture is that we, we really and truly 
idolize happiness. Now, if you're listening on the podcast, I don't know where in the world you're listening from, but I can speak to America and the United States of America. We idolize happiness. We say it all the time. Hey, whatever makes you happy. If you're not happy, then look for something else. Like your happiness, nothing should conflict with that. Nothing should get in the way of that. Nothing should be standing in the way of that. Or, or you know, even to the degree in which if someone is unhappy or experiencing a level of unhappiness, then what we think is that something must be wrong. You must or you should change something so that you can be happy, so that you will be happy. But this idea or this notion of happiness, like a perpetual 24-7 happiness, is not in alignment with the Christian life, nor was it in alignment with what Jesus himself was experiencing here in this text. Again, go back to verse 34. And this is what Jesus said, or this is what Mark said about Jesus. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. So Jesus was looking at it like, I'm not happy. (laughs) That is the opposite of happy. Clearly, Jesus was far from happy. He was troubled. He was grieved. He was overwhelmed. And the weight that he was carrying, the intensity of that emotion, the intensity of that moment, felt like it was going to cripple him to the point of death. He was in despair. Now, none of those things, I don't think I need to explain this, but I'm just going to make it clear and state it for the record. None of those things are happy feelings. Jesus had to surrender his happiness. He had to surrender this idea of I'm going to be happy, that in intimacy, in a relationship with God, I should always be happy. And, and, and look, I, I want to say this because I really believe that everyone's life is better with Jesus at the center. But that does not mean everyone's circumstances always are better. That does not mean everyone's life conditions or living conditions get better. I do believe everyone's life is better with Jesus at the center, but that does not mean everything in life gets better, and it doesn't mean, certainly doesn't mean, that your life will always be happy. See, there are a lot of things that I've had to go through in my life. There are a lot of things that I've experienced that didn't make me happy. But you know what they did? They made me better. They made me stronger. They made me grow. They encouraged my relationship with God. They strengthened and fortified my relationship with God. They produced and cultivated intimacy in my relationship with God. But they didn't make me happy. And so if I'm sitting here trying to kind of pursue happiness and think, oh, well, listen, in our founding documents that every person, every man and every woman is entitled to the pursuit of happiness. And that is a God-given right as we declare as a country then we're missing the mark. You see, without even realizing it, it could be that your obsession with happiness is actually what is standing in the way of your intimacy with God. This desire and this pursuit and this belief that I always need to be happy, that if I'm unhappy, something must be broken, that if um, God must have led me astray or God must have, you know, kind of guided me down the wrong path or God must be absent if I'm not happy is just false. Jesus himself said, I was... I'm crushed with grief to the point of death. So you have to surrender the idea of always being happy. The second idea you have to surrender is the idea of things being easy. You need to surrender to things being easy. You know, I mentioned this a few weeks ago during our church's vision night. 
how we are just creatures of habit. As, you know, humankind, we just like, you know, kind of the simple, consistent, predictable, stable, safe things. And, and we like that we can kind of take the path of least resistance if we can, if there's a path available to us that appears to offer least or less resistance, we will take that path. And listen, I'm guilty as charged. I'm not speaking this as an indictment on anyone else and I'm pointing the finger or both fingers back at me and saying, yes, Ricky is this way too. Ricky likes this idea. Ricky falls prey to this. If there is a path that offers lesser resistance, that is easier, we are almost always going to opt or be inclined to choose that path. But what happens when things aren't easy? What happens when having a relationship with God or pursuing intimacy with God doesn't lead to life being a piece of cake? What do you do then? And again, I look to what Jesus did in this moment. Verses 35 and 36, I'm going to reread them to you. It says this about Jesus. He went on a little farther and fell to the ground. And he prayed out that if it were possible that this awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. And he said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. So please take this cup of suffering away from me. Now, obviously, Jesus wanted an easier path. Obviously, Jesus longed and desired for something that wouldn't be as difficult or as burdensome or as hard or as burdening. And he said, all things are possible for you, God. You could make this easier. You could make my load lighter. You could make my path less treacherous. And yet he surrendered it by saying, but I want your will to be done, not mine. And this is difficult for us. And, and I'll speak to a personal example. Many of you are aware or, or know some of the challenges that we went through as a family in 2020. And I don't need to get in like massive detail about those things. But in the first five months, it was wave after wave after wave of grief, death in the family, um, family tension and drama, um, people in New York City, the, the situation happening with the pandemic and the way it was impacting and devastating New York City. Um, we lose, you know, suffer through a miscarriage and, and all of these things happening. Our church is kind of separating and dissipating as people are moving in other parts of the country and all of these things are happening just wave after wave after, you know, like literally the first five months of the year were just brutal, brutal. And I remember just being so overwhelmed with grief, so hurt by what was taking place, um, so burdened by like what, what happened, these hopes and these dreams, like it just dashed in every area of my life. And, and not knowing what to make of it, not understanding why, God being silent, seeking God, God, anything, like you can stop this, God. You can change this in my personal life. You can change this in our world. You can change this for our church. You can change this in this person. God, what, like you could intervene and hearing nothing, receiving nothing. And I remember having this brutally honest conversation with God one day in my apartment. And I remember standing there just somehow in this moment, just talking with God. And I remember saying to God, I understand why people leave you. I understand why people walk away from you. I get why they would want nothing to do with you. 
because I can feel that in my life. These circumstances, these conditions, these situations, not only are they hard, not only are they difficult, not only are they brutally painful, but you seem nowhere to be found, God. And I don't hear from you. You're not speaking into this. You're not comforting me in this. And I remember as soon as I started thinking those things, as soon as I started saying those things, I said, okay, but what about me? What will I do? I understand why others leave, but what will I choose? And I remember I had to walk myself back to the 16-year-old version of my, the 16-year-old version of Ricky and say, why did Ricky choose you? What was that based on? What was that decision founded on? When I gave my life to you, I said, God, I will go wherever you tell me to go. I will follow you wherever you send me. Uh, Lord, I will do whatever you ask me to do. What did I base that on? Was it a promise that life would be easy? No, there was no promise that life would be easy. Was it the belief that like everything would go according to my plan? No, I don't remember there was ever a belief that everything was going to go according to my plan. Was it because I thought I would never experience pain or grief or sadness or hurt or betrayal? No, I don't remember ever saying that was what it was going to be. I just said, God, I want to trust you and nothing else. No conditions, no agenda, no expectation other than you, God, are enough for me. And I remember in this moment, in May of 2020, making this decision to say, God, that's what I came to you for, and that's why I'm going to stay with you. Because my decision to follow you, my decision to believe in you, my decision to trust in you, wasn't predicated, wasn't based on, wasn't determined on all of these other things happening in my life and going well for me. And so what, how silly, how foolish of me would it be to walk away from you for those things when those were not things that we agreed upon and said our relationship would be based upon. And yet people do this all the time. Christians do this all the time. And the question you need to consider, the question you need to contemplate for yourself is when life gets difficult and things start to kind of unravel and dissipate, what happens to your relationship with God? Does it tear away at the intimacy you worked so hard to cultivate? Or do you allow those things to be stripped away so that it could build up and foster and strengthen intimacy with God. Because notice this, Jesus choosing to surrender the easy path actually opened up an opportunity for you and I to experience intimacy with God ourselves. So we must surrender the idea of things being easy. Now here's the third idea. The third thing we need to surrender is surrender needing someone else. Now, parenthetically, you could put needing something else. But we need to surrender this idea of needing someone else. And this is a sensitive one. But, but I want, again, I want to look to Jesus first. Verse 40, it says this. When he returned, when Jesus came back to his friends and he found them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open and they didn't know what to say. I think about this. This is Jesus' most vulnerable moment. His whole life, his whole friendship, or his whole life has been building toward this, and his friendship with these guys and with these people has been planning and preparing for this moment. And he just calls three, says, Hey, I just need three of you guys. 
you know, Peter, James, and John, just come hang with me. I'm going to go here. And he's like, my, he tells him, my soul is crushed to grief to the point of death. So they knew the situation. And in his moment of desperation, in his moment of angst, in his moment of worry of being overwhelmed by grief, his disciples were over there taking a nap. And then when he wakes them up, it says they didn't even know what to say. Man, you ever been in a situation where like you're going through something real in life? Where you're going through something deep in life? Where you're experiencing some pain? You're experiencing some hurts? Something has happened and you go to that person and you're like, man, I just need to pour out my heart. I just need someone who can listen. And they just look at you with a blank face. And they just kind of stare at you like... And, and, and they've got nothing to say. And how deflating and how hurtful and how lonely it makes you feel. And this is exactly what Jesus encountered. And, and, and I want to speak here for a moment because there's, this applies to a lot of people, not just single people, but there are singles, there are people in relationships right now, dating or marital relationships, who believe they need someone else to be complete or they need someone else to experience and to find true intimacy in a relationship. They're living under this guise or under this belief that, man, I need someone else. I need this. I'm lacking something. I'm not whole. I'm insufficient or I don't have what I need or I don't have what I want. And so I must be, something must be wrong or I must not be good enough or I must be broken or there must be a problem because I can't live into my potential. I can't become who God wants me to be unless I have someone else. And I just want you to know that is untrue. That is a lie from the mouth of Satan. And there is nothing that could be further from the truth. You see, oftentimes... I've actually found that having someone, that leaning on someone else, that being dependent on someone else actually creates a crutch that God never intended, where you seek and desire and pursue intimacy with that person more than you seek and desire and pursue intimacy with him. You see, God desires to be everything you need, and he desires, he longs to prove that intimacy and satisfaction can be found in him and him alone, that he is fully sufficient for your life. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when he wrote these words in verses 32 through 34. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking of how to please him. In other words, an unmarried man can spend time cultivating intimacy with God. Verse 33, but a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. And in the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. See, the Apostle Paul is writing and he's saying, listen, you don't need anyone else. You don't need somebody else to find intimacy. You don't need something else to satisfy that longing and that emptiness in your soul. You just need God and that God will be everything you need. So surrender this idea that you need someone else, that you need something else. Surrender to this idea that life is always going to be easy. Surrender to this idea that things are all, you're always going to be happy. And then this fourth kind of layer of surrender that Jesus navigated in this text was surrendering his idea of his preferred outcomes. You need to surrender your preferred outcomes. One of the things I love about Jesus' 
actions in this passage is that he didn't just talk the talk, but he walked the walk. He didn't just say, God, not my will, but your will, but he yielded himself to it. He surrendered to it. He didn't just pray to fulfill God's desires. He actually acted to fulfill those desires. He stepped into it knowing what it would mean and ultimately what it would take from him. Again, I go back to verses 41 and 42. It says, when Jesus returned to them a third time, he said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. Actually pivot, change, but no, the time has come. You see, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, so up, let's be going because my betrayer is here. You see, Jesus saw what was happening, like literally saw his betrayer, Judas, and a whole kind of mini militia had come to take him. And he knew this is the moment. This is what I'm here for. And I wanted something else. I desired something else. I hoped for a different outcome. I wished that there was another way. I prayed that God would change my circumstances. But this is where I'm at. This is the path. This is where I'm going. And so I'm going to surrender these preferred outcomes. And instead, I'm going to walk toward the mission and the destination that God the Father has for me because I want to please Him. And again, I want to yield to another. I want to surrender to Him and walk in fulfillment with Him so that I can experience intimacy with God. He didn't run from it. He didn't whine. He didn't shy away from it. He didn't push back. He didn't complain that the outcome or the situation was going to be different. He walked toward his destiny, which included his death, knowing that the father was in control, knowing that the father would be by his side, knowing that he would be fully enveloped in and by God's love. Far too many of us, far too many of us tend to push away or shut down when things don't go our way. Like a two-year-old, we cry when we don't get the lollipop. We toss a temper tantrum when we don't get that job, when that person dates someone else, when that person didn't get healed, when our illness seems to be prolonged, when our suffering and our grieving seems to keep attacking and ravaging our spirits. And we don't have those preferred outcomes. And we push away and we shut down and say, okay, God, I can't trust you. Okay, God, I can't have intimacy with you. Okay, God, fine. If that's how you're going to be, then I'll just kind of keep my distance. Maybe, God, maybe I'll even walk away. But when it came time to it, Jesus surrendered his preferred outcomes and he walked toward his destiny. He walked toward his purpose, ultimately to unlock the possibility and the potential for you and for me to experience intimacy with God ourselves. You know, I mentioned some of the situations and the circumstances that I walked through in 2020. And I wish I could say that the first half of the year was the worst of it and everything got easier from there. But things would continue progressing and, and getting more difficult, more challenging, more hurtful, more frustrating, more disappointing. But what's interesting is that for the past four or five years, I started really kind of trying to narrow down heading into the calendar year. Lord, give me something specific that I can pray for in my relationship with you and in my own life. Like, I know a lot of people do like a word for the year and I don't necessarily stick to like a word for the year as much as I think like, God, what is this one facet of our relationship that I want to pray into, that I want to experience, that I want to cultivate over the course of this year? 
And in December of 2019, I, I kind of went through the same process. And I felt like the Holy Spirit had guided me to a word, to a place, uh, an aspect of our relationship that could be developed, that could further grow and be improved upon. And I kid you not, my prayer that I prayed for every single day of 2020 that I felt the Holy Spirit led me to pray for was to cultivate intimacy with God. Every single day, even still this year, I have the same idea, I practice the same principle, and every single day at 6 a.m., I receive a daily notification, a daily reminder to pray over this one aspect, this one facet of my relationship with God. And in 2020, it was no different. The word and the, the request, the prayer was intimacy with God. And what I realized, or what I realize now looking back, is that God sought to answer that prayer by stripping away everything that was clouding and crowding out my intimacy with him. Family, health, desires, personal dreams for our family, ministry dreams for our church, friendships, relationships, experiences in this city. And he was isolating, slowly pulling everything apart, stripping it all away so that at the end of the day, it was just me and him because he wanted me to know that, Ricky, the only way you can have true intimacy with me is if you surrender all of these things and only focus on me. And what I realize now for as painful and as difficult and as challenging as that year was, the reward is the intimacy and the connection that I have with God today. So I come to you and I ask you, what is it that you need to surrender? What is it that you're holding on to that's clouding or that's crowding out your ability to experience intimacy with God? What is it that you need to strip away so that all that's left is just you and God? What is it that you need to remove, that you need to surrender? Is it always being happy? Is it things always being easy? Is it this idea or this fact that you need someone, this thought that you need someone? Is it that your outcomes aren't going to always turn out the way you prefer? Whatever it is, I want to invite you today. I want to invite you to surrender. To surrender so that you can find and unlock intimacy with God. Thanks again for joining us today on the Meta Church Podcast. To connect further with us, find us on Instagram or visit us online. 